either we choose to um, basically fight for private for digital privacy as a human right, mm. or almost inevitably our digital rights will be like eroded by governments and will be co-opted by governments. And we, I think the end state of that is that we essentially live in something like 1984 yeah. because there's just no digital privacy at all. And, and governments have this way of like using companies, right. As tools to, to manage like large groups of people They go and they, they go to Google and they say, give us all the private data, like, on the people that we're interested in. Mm. Um, there are now technologies that potentially can force governments and states to have to go directly to the person, like not like keeping the intermediate technology, like the Google Docs of the world, yeah. sort of neutral to what that person is doing. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Look Up Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Weinstein. And as always, I wanted to start off this episode with a huge thank you to all of you that have been listening, subscribing, following along, commenting on the social media posts. I sincerely appreciate and feel humbled by all of your support. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, so prior to starting you know, this podcast, um, I've worked in a number of different industries and I think it's really unclear as to what I do outside of my work with LookUp, especially because it's really represents, I would say 80 to 90% of my social media presence, which is really, as we discuss on this show, just a small part of my life. You know, we all present avatars of ourselves, um, on social media, or we don't, convey the full picture um, or full story of our of our lives. And some of this is intentional uh, and some of it just happens unconsciously. And other outside of Twitter, uh, I don't really post much about my work, but I've been spending the last two to three years uh, as a full-time investor uh, and consultant in the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry. Uh, I got into the space unofficially in 2013 when I first learned about and invested in Bitcoin. Uh, I spoke about this a little bit on my friend Peter McCormick's podcast, What Bitcoin Did, uh, and then spent you know a few years, as, as many of you might know, in the music industry. But in 2017, I returned to blockchain when I learned about Ethereum and invested in a number of initial coin offerings uh, and have really been neck deep and above in the space for a long time, as you'll see from this episode uh, coming up. And so, you know, I rarely uh, have guests on the show who are also involved in the in the blockchain space. I think there's a number of incredible podcasts in the space already. But when I had the opportunity to connect with Jake Bruckman, uh, who is the guest on this show, I couldn't help myself. And so, for those of you that are listening along who are 
um, deeply familiar with the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry, this episode might be a little bit too high level for you. Um, but for those of you that are new to this space or really know nothing about it except for the conversations that you see on Bloomberg and a lot of the finance news about the price movements in Bitcoin or how people are getting absurdly rich or now poor um, from the cryptocurrency industry, you know, I think it's really important to understand um, the values that drive the blockchain and crypto space, as well as some of the important applications that are emerging from this space. And so, you know, this episode stays at a little bit of a high level, as I mentioned, but I think we cover some extremely important uh, concepts here. And so now to my guest, uh, I invited Jake Bruckman on the show. Jake is the co-founder of CoinFund, which is a cryptocurrency and blockchain focused fund based in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, CoinFund was one of the first private investment companies focused on the blockchain space, and Jake was an early adopter of the technology. In fact, he's a serial early adopter of technology uh, who has a background in mathematics and computer science. And prior to starting CoinFund, Jake was a partner at a place called Triton Research, which was analyzing uh, financial data and compiling it um, for investors. And prior to that, he was an engineer at Amazon. I also learned through this episode that Jake is a ravenous collector of virtual art. So Jake and I first connected on Twitter, actually. I was working at a, at a venture fund called Wave Financial, and I was exploring a pretty nuanced topic in the blockchain industry called generalized mining, which is really just a fancy way of describing um, participation in a blockchain network. And one of the cool things about uh, what people in this space call quote unquote crypto Twitter is that you know anyone who's entering the space who has a question or who's learning can really just uh, comment and tweet at um, some some early adopters and oftentimes they'll get back to you. So I tweeted about generalized mining. I had some thoughts that I wanted to share and some questions and Jake responded, which I thought was really cool. And then we started connecting more on Twitter. Um, finally met in person last year and have been interacting ever since. And I think he's one of the um, one of the greatest thinkers, greatest minds in the space. Uh, it was actually quite intimidating chatting with him. You know, we did, as I mentioned, try to keep it high level. Uh, but, you know, we we could have gone a bit deeper and he definitely could have gone um, layers and layers deeper even than, than I could have. But, you know, the importance of this episode to me is covering you know, why blockchain? And we were able to cover some some meaningful ground here. I think, you know, we spoke a bit about data rights and data ownership and, you know, blockchain technology um, has built within it the opportunity for individuals to own their own data. Um, we also talk about privacy, which is a major theme uh, in the blockchain space. Privacy as a human Right, a fundamental right not to um, have to give governments and big corporations access to key information about yourself. Uh, and then we started getting into um, governance and the future of the coordination of um, of resources, which 
can be described through a new um, form of organization called the Distributed Autonomous Organization, which we dive into. And finally, we you know we went with some fun topics um, like digital collectibles and virtual art, which um, this technology called non fungible tokens or NFTs enables. And so it's a really you know a really fun episode for me to be able to move into and discuss an industry that I've been participating in for almost the last three years, and also to share with you listeners uh, some important concepts and companies that are coming out of the space. So I hope that you enjoy it. Uh, this has been one of my longer introductions, and uh, and so I'm going to let you go and just listen to Jake Bruckman and what he has to say about the future of Web 3.0. Thanks. Jake Brookman, welcome to the Look Up Podcast. Thanks for coming through. Thanks, uh, thanks, Mark. It's really nice to be here. Mm. I haven't been in LA since like 2002, so it's, mm. it's awesome. Enjoying yeah. the weather, at least. It's great weather. Um, it's beautiful out here. What brings you out here? Uh, fundraising mm. in California and SF, and then also Coin Fund's former CTO. Uh, actually lives in LA here, so I'm staying with him for the weekend. Oh, nice! Just to just to catch up. Yeah, just to catch up. Oh, that's cool. So it's great for me because I got the opportunity to have you on the show. It's like a rare. I was telling you, it's rare for me to have someone from the crypto space. I don't even know if my listeners know that <laughs> I work full time in the crypto and blockchain industry for the last two years. Yeah, um, you definitely did. Yeah. And you're 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 a uh, your name. You're oh yeah, <laughs> you're, yeah right. <laughs> But thank you. Um, so speaking of, I mean, everybody has their own kind of path, right? And obviously I've had a windy road to get here. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it'd be helpful to kind of just get a little bit of your background yeah. and what drove you to kind of participate in this industry. Um, what I like to say is that I'm a professional early adopter of technology. So I mm-hmm. had like the first iPhone in January of 2008. Mm-hmm. Someone on Twitter said that wasn't early enough, uh, but it was pretty early. It was like I the, saw first, that post, the first six months <laughs> of the iPhone. Um, I, you know, y- you know, I learned computer programming when I was 14 years old uh, because my parents had a computer in the house early and so on and so on and so forth. Um, but my journey uh, is essentially that I am a computer science math guy. Mm-hmm. I went to Rutgers and then NYU Courant for, for math. Um, I worked in the hedge fund industry in New York for about five years. I worked at a big Highbridge. Yeah, I worked at a big hedge fund called mm-hmm. Highbridge. Um, then I kind of became a little bit disillusioned with with Wall Street and the culture. It was a little bit dry for me. Yeah, and I was like, let me go to pure tech. So I went and worked at Amazon. When was this? Uh, so around. 2012. I, I yeah, went. So in 2012, at a place like Highbridge, were you allowed to have a beard? For those of you that aren't looking, you know, you've got a, a really nice beard, and I feel like Wall Street <laughs> in 12, you weren't allowed to have one. That's why I like. I feel like we, I feel like we had people who had beards, but we weren't allowed to like wear clothes that were too bright. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. like if you wore something too red, like someone would say, "Hey, what? Like, what are you doing?" Yeah, um, don't stand out. <laughs> Sit at your cubicle. Um, okay, so you so you left Highbridge because they didn't let you wear red, um, and then you correct. moved over to Amazon. 
Uh, yes. And then, so I ran a team that was actually a really, really great experience oh, and very imagine. fun. Ran a team. We built a product from scratch. It was mm-hmm. uh, an ad tech product for them. Some stuff like Google has been doing for 20 years, but for, for Amazon, they were just sort of um, getting around to it. And it's basically a platform where companies can run ads on all the Amazon properties Oh, cool. And that was very successful very quickly because it was a no-brainer. Um, yeah. Um, so so it's basically just identifying something that Google had built in the advertising space and saying, how can we apply this to... Yeah. Well, I would even say it's it was like Amazon um, was doing a lot of ad sales manually, which is weird because it's like a technology company. And they said, hey, guys, like, why aren't we automating this? So, so we automated it. Um, that's cool. That was our team. And then after that, I was going to go and be an entrepreneur. It was sort of misguided. I didn't have like, like a, a great startup idea or anything. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I quit my job at Amazon, but I immediately kind of got recruited back into, into startup tech. And I became the CTO of a company called Triton Research. Okay. Uh, which did some really cool, um, basically financial research. So they would, source all these data points from the internet about mm. private technology companies like Uber and they would reconstruct their financial models. Oh, no way. Yeah. So at that time, all of this was non-public information, at least the financials of some of these tech giants. Exactly. And you guys would take the publicly available data we would. And, turn it into and so very interestingly, cool. the data would leak, right? So some executive from the from a company would go on into an article and say, oh, we had this much sales in that month of that year. And our job was to take all of this stuff, like this unstructured data, pull it out ah. and like organize it and then use it as, as a data point. So we did that very, very successfully. And along the way, um, as I was doing all of that, I learned about Bitcoin in 2011. So I had a friend, you know, he said, hey, look at this weird digital currency that people created, Mm. you know, (laughs) and then it sort of went from there. That's really cool. So it was, so your entry into the blockchain space was less, um, started out maybe less philosophical. It was more about your desire to kind of, your, your tendency to want to play around with the cutting edge from a technological standpoint. Yes. And this was Bitcoin when you found it was like, oh, wow, there's nothing else out there like this. I need to figure out. Well, I would even say I would even say like I found it and I I understood the high level concept, but the the gravity of it didn't didn't quite hit me until, you know, I'd say mid 2013 when one of the guys Mm -hmm. over at Highbridge um, who I still talk to and and and. and I'm grateful that he was like the person that, that did this for me. But what he did was he wrote a paper and he was like, this is how Bitcoin actually works. And he explained it to me. And once I expl- once I figured out how it works, mm. that's when it was like, Phew! and that's when it sort of clicked for me. And I started learning, started reading the Bitcoin subreddit. I learned about Ethereum. Mm. And then, um, you know, as Ethereum was kind of coming to production, I was like, I'm going to be a miner. And started mining Ethereum, and as a matter of fact, CoinFund mined some of the first no way. blocks of the Ethereum blockchain in wow. 2015. That's incredible. I mean, for me, with with Bitcoin, you know, it was mostly an economic, um, mm-hmm. I guess, entry point. Not from like a personal finance standpoint, but from just like an understanding of macroeconomics and wanting to, you know, participate in this 
digital store value. I think by, by the time I entered in 2013, I don't know if they called it a digital store value, but I think the digital gold thesis was already circulating. There, it, I think it was, and it was a much smaller story than it is today. I think, I think what has happened is that people started out with saying, oh, Bitcoin is a currency. And then quickly over mm. the course of five years or so, figuring out that actually, you know, this type of thing, which is very esoteric, very hard to use, very volatile, um, yeah. is actually not that great of a currency. And so they switched their story. They said, oh, it's not a currency anymore. It's, uh, it's just digital gold. Yeah. And you've been there from the beginning to watch how the narratives <laughs> have changed. And so that's one of the most fascinating things about this industry to me is how quickly the narratives move. And right. in, in some ways, it's like... Uh, it's like a microcosm of just the broader media space, right? We're in our little echo chamber of crypto Twitter mm -hmm. and people are going back and forth with these different, you know, ETH is money, right? Like all of a sudden Ethereum is money. Right. Um, and it wasn't before. And then, you know, it just yeah, now, continues now a lot of people are talking about that. You're right. Now, the thing that I have always mm. pressed upon uh, when talking about uh, cryptocurrencies is that currencies are actually the least interesting applications in certain, in a certain way uh, to me, you know, um, compared to everything else that's going on and everything else that's going on is, um, potentially quite disruptive to many other industries and potentially a very important tool. And I think like in the early days, a lot of this assumption is actually due to, um, the Facebook product. And the assumption was if we connect the world, you know how Facebook's uh, motto was like making the world more open and connected. If we connect <laughs> the world, then this is going to be just like a positive application of technology. And I think what we have learned at this point, the hard way is that that's actually not true. And so you, I think we started with a world where things like content, like media, like mm -hmm. art, were produced by big monolithic companies, right? If you wanted to be on TV, there's only like very few people that can be on TV. If you wanted to be an author, there's only a few people that could be an author. Mm. But what the internet did was it came along and it democratized that. Now everyone can be an author on the internet. Everyone can be on TV, on YouTube. Everyone can be a musician. Everyone can be a photographer using their iPhone. Mm. And what has come along with that kind of technology very naturally is the interconnection of all of these things and the efficiency of communication has gone up. Now we wanted to say that that is just a positive thing, but what we see from issues like Cambridge Analytica, mm. what we see, um, you know, is, is, is basically that um, it, having open communication and such efficient communication is actually not great. It's not great for democracy. <laughs> it's, it allows much more fine grade manipulation of our, of our society mm. um, in a way that has overturned democratic elections all over the world, including potentially in the United States. Right. And of course you're referring to the Cambridge Analytica scandal which yes. potentially led to the election of Trump. And potentially. And, and not just in the U.S., right? Like yeah. if you watch um, the, the Great Hack, the on, great Netflix. hack on Netflix, exactly, yeah. um, then you will see like many other countries being impacted. And as runoff 
um, of these kinds of issues of, of the fact that our society now runs on the technology that's built by just a few big, they're called big tech companies, right? Um, there are some externalities because of that. And one of the externalities is that people have made this very unfair trade-off where they said, okay, the company is going to provide me with this free communication service, mm. but in return, they're going to suck up all my data. They're going to monetize it. They're going to infringe on my right to privacy with that data. They might give that data to the government or, or law, law enforcement, um, you know, and so on and so forth. So there are all these issues now um, where big companies are kind of abusing the rights of people. And, and if you don't even buy that story at the very least, right, you have to buy the fact that is this trade-off fair? In other words, you're giving kind of the most valuable information that you can give mm. online to these companies. They're making money off of it and you're not. Yeah. And I think it's, it, it reminds me of just this, you know, ever, I don't even know who said it first, but just kind of this quote that circulates, which is, if it's free, you're the product, right? All right. So we have all this incredibly, you know, unprecedented access um, because our data is being captured. And something that, um, you know, I think an argument that I constantly see happening on online is, well, if you don't like it, then leave. Right. If you don't mm -hmm. like the way that Facebook's collecting your data, then leave. Um, you know, similar argument to you don't need to go to a restaurant if you don't like their practices. But to me, that that argument is um, flawed because certain of these networks, Facebook in particular, have gotten so large, especially in emerging economies where Facebook is essentially the equivalent of the Internet um, because they provide free free mobile data to users in these emerging economies. And so you can't necessarily opt out. You certainly can't in those places if you want internet access. And if you want to stay connected to the rest of your, you know, whatever, 2000 friends, air quotes on Facebook or your audience, because you're, because you're a media company, you know, you cannot opt out of Facebook. It's where the people are. And so in a way, you know, if going back to this comment about being a libertarian, the question that I have is like, is is facebook or are these social networks at this scale the commons and you know then the question is well would it be better controlled by government probably not but what's so exciting to me about this crypto revolution is it from my perspective you zoom out it really is a way for the commons to be managed more democratically mm -hmm. Um, without some kind of, you know, authoritarian figure allocating, allocating resources that can be corrupted. Yes. So that's a, that's a, that's a fantastic point. And as an investor in, you know, crypto blockchain industry, right. I, we often draw that analogy that when you have a decentralized network like Bitcoin, like Ethereum, like a network for storage, mm -hmm. like a network for social media, um, this is a, a public good. There's this concept of public good or common good uh, mm. in economics, right? And the idea is that this is something that should be available to everybody. Like air is available to everyone. It should be protected. Yes. Or water should be clean. Like these basic things. We've now reached a level of technological development where it is very obvious 
that technology, like communication technology, like text, like voice, like video, mm. like email, right? All of these things are just fundamentally important ways that humans communicate with other humans all over the world every day and so there's a i think in my opinion there's a strong argument to say these things should be common goods they should be neutral to the information that's going over them and they should not be controlled by private corporations that you know take this data and use it for their own purposes Mm. um Arguably, they could be regulated, and, and often are, right? Regulated by governments, but that doesn't mean that they necessarily have to be governed by government governments, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, the the really exciting piece of of blockchain that you're alluding to is that these networks are experimenting with ways that the users of these networks, mm-hmm. the people who have the most to gain and lose, um, you, you know. But by participating in that network, actually get a role in governance. And what we're seeing in these very early days, but is that that might actually work. Hmm. And it's that's so interesting that we, I don't even think we, you know, we were planning on covering governance, but it's, uh, it's so interesting that we landed here because it's only within like a very, I would even say even a small group in, in the crypto community has it really, um, is it, you know, uh, this discussion kind of happening all the time. And I think part of that is with the, you know, the recent resurgence in DAOs, mm-hmm. um, which are distributed autonomous organizations, and mm-hmm. as you said, governed by people, um, by the users of the network. You know, we're finally having these conversations, but outside of crypto, nobody's talking about what's happening, which is probably the greatest experiment in governance models in you know, since potentially the American revolution, mm-hmm. you know, like, and, and the stakes are low, right? So you look at things like there's one called Moloch Dow, which has been, you know, very active and it's mostly for providing grants to developers to build. But I don't know, it's just a, it's just a fascinating um, time right now in the space because right. it's not necessarily financially driven, but it could, you know, lead to the way that, um, people coordinate, uh, you know, globally in the future. Maybe not five years, maybe not ten years, but maybe twenty, thirty years. Especially as things increasingly become digital. Well, so so this is interesting because I I actually do think that this issue, in other words, the issue of corporate responsibility, mm-hmm. while maintaining these kinds of technologies that are public goods. Um, have actually come quite a bit into the forefront of our political discourse here in the U.S. Um, mm. Like, for example, Elizabeth Warren, right, recently uh, put forward a proposal that says, hey, you know, we should break up technology companies. And and by the way, let me be clear. I'm not necessarily endorsing yes. Elizabeth Warren. Um, you know, in fact, in fact, I'm a big this fan. This is not of, investment advice. And this is not, not investment advice. advice. I'm a big fan of Andrew Yang, but like, um, you know, but but just on the substance of it, what she's saying is, if you're a big technology company who runs a platform, in other words, you're providing the infrastructure on which something like an Amazon marketplace lives or an ad marketplace lives, then 
what uh, what you have to do is you have to recognize that you have a conflict of interest. If you're the platform provider, but you're also the dictator and uh, vendor on the platform, then you have all these skewed incentives to mess around with everybody else. And that's exactly what Amazon does, right? It mm -hmm. reads all of the data of all of their vendors and then goes and competes with them. That's exactly what Twitter does. It reads all of the uh, the data of their um, users and it goes and censors some of them. That's what YouTube does and so on and so on and so forth. And what Elizabeth is saying is that, hey, you should separate the roles of the platform and the, and you know, one of the providers on the, on the, on the marketplace. Absolutely. Um, now is that the, is that the, that's definitely like a solution. Is that the best solution? Um, I don't know, but, but maybe that's a step forward toward a system that's more, and and with these new governance models, at least in you know these decentralized networks that we're that we're exploring through crypto and blockchain, you can do both, right? You mm -hmm. can have participants whose responsibility is to you know manage the content in, in the platform, and then you can have participants whose responsibility is to just manage the platform itself, right? And there can be all sorts of combinations of that. Well, right? well, I think I think what. Um I think what blockchain would do in Elizabeth Warren's context as she, as she talks about these platform utilities and, and, and company, uh, companies that are participating on them is, you know, we actually simplify the problem in a way because we say, just take the company out, then yep. you don't have a conflict of interest because the provider of the network of this service or of this marketplace mm. is just a computer program and everybody is a user. So there is no like, and that, get, that gets down to the idea of, um, well, so in that instance, you know, now we move into permissioned versus permissionless. And if you remove a company as we, you know, as we know it, mm -hmm. um, but it's a quote unquote permission chain, meaning that there are only a certain type of participant allowed in governing the network or even entering the network. Then it still kind of has that that some of the same challenges, right? It could just be you know a group of developers that are you know controlling the network, which for some use cases is fine. But permissionless means that anyone can participate. So for these these common potentially what I believe might be considered common goods like Facebook social media network, for example, um, I think it would have to be permissionless. Um, there's a very important distinction between sort of things that are permission and permissionless in the sense that if you're a corporation, right, like you're often after profits. Yes. And so as you run this platform and as you interact with your users, always in the back of your mind is this idea of like, what's our margin, Problem. right? How are yeah. we generating revenue for our shareholders or for our private owners? Um, and often in the context of a permissionless network or a decentralized network, right? You, you don't have that fiduciary duty because there's no ultimate like private or, or public beneficiary of the, the business model. The business model simply exists there to facilitate whatever service the network is offering, but not necessarily with margins. And that's, that's, again, one of the most interesting parts of all of this is we're now we're talking about new economic models. So we have new economic models 
that move beyond the idea of private corporations. And we have mm-hmm. new governance models that move beyond, I think, what we've been able to achieve to date. And you kind of look at the intersection of those two and it feels like almost, you know, we're in this Petri dish of, of mm-hmm. just, you know, massive experimentation. And, and when we go to these conferences, you know, like I think you were in Berlin, I was just in mm-hmm. Berlin at Blockchain mm-hmm. Week as well. There's just this excitement, you know, mm-hmm. when you forget about all of the, the price hype and things like that, that, that brought many people into the space. You know, what gets me going is this, is this, you know, idea that we haven't reached the pinnacle of, of human coordination. Right. Um, and now we have a new, um, it's technology, but it's, it's, it's technology enabled, you know, like it's, it's technology enabled by microeconomics and game theory that can allow us to move beyond, I think, you know, as an example, a democracy and a free market capitalist society, which have been the best performing, you know, structures to date. But I think we can, we'll see an evolution beyond that. So I want, yeah. So, so I have some thoughts on that topic actually. So, so one thing that let's just acknowledge, right. Is that like, how long have you humans been around on the planet? Right. Probably a couple of hundred thousand years. Right. How long have we had serious human, you mentioned human coordination. In other words, organizing large groups of humans. Well, you know, probably a few thousand years, I don't know, 5,000 years, maybe even 10,000 years. Point is, it's a very small amount of time compared to the time that we've been around. How Unless you believe in ancient aliens. <laughs> right. Let's not, <laughs> let's not go there. thousand years, Graham Hancock. Yeah. You can't do a podcast. I actually saw Graham over in New York. I saw his talk. But oh, really? Well, let's, yeah, like, let's not. <laughs> it, was at the, it was at the uh, National Arts Club over there. I, I saw him and Daniel Pinchbeck um, uh, cool. moderated conversation about this DMT book that they had both been interviewed right. for. That would at the assemblage. So now we've covered aliens and DMT quickly. It wouldn't be a podcast without mentioning those two things. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was, it's definitely fun to think about, but, but my point is, you know, so we have, we've been around for a long time. We haven't been organizing for that long. Mm. And then if you look at the modern tool for organization, which is the corp- corporation, right? It's only been around for you know, hundreds of years. Mm. So the point is that we have had very little time to study governance systems now, we have our democracies, we have our dictatorships in the world, but those systems move really, really slow. When you get into blockchain world, you suddenly can iterate systems at the speed of software. Mm. And that's really powerful for experimentation. The other thought there that I've had is, you know, as a member of some of these DAO experiments, um, it's clear to me, a few things are clear to me. Like one, one thing that it's clear to me is that most of the interaction, like when you're in a DAO, like Moloch, mm. um, most of the interaction between the people in that organization happens not on the blockchain. It happens in real life. It yep. happens in meetings. It happens in phone calls. It happens in chats. And only when the decision has been made by the group, then you kind of go to the blockchain and you settle it. And so that's actually really nice. You don't want to be in technology all the time. You want to just interact with your fellow humans and you have a very simple, straightforward technology that coordinates that and enforces sort of the, the mandate of whatever you're doing. You know, the other, the other thing that, that starts to become obvious as you hang out in DAOs or you're just 
studying like kind of governance is that when you implement governments on a local level, that's always better than having some kind of large monolithic entity that dictates what everybody in the world or the country or the city has to do. Because people who are local, they know their local problems, they know their local weather, they know who their neighbors are, right? And so there's almost, like I have, I've, I've been toying around with this idea of like radically local government, which means imagine that you had, you know, not just your federal government, not just your state, but you maybe had a govern governance system for, you know, you and your roommates. Then you had a governance system for your block. Mm. Then you had a governance system for your neighborhood. And only then did you, did you, would you go on the city level and only then would you go on the state level and so on. And I think if you can find a way of solving problems locally, first of all, people are much more willing to do that and much more willing to do that in the correct way mm. for how those problems should be solved. And you stop having to have these monolithic things like, you know, dictatorships mm. um, kind of impose these very general rules on everybody. I think local governance is very powerful and the technology for local governance has to be enabled um, by things like decentralized networks or blockchains or, or some kind of digital tech. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting point. I mean, in some ways, I definitely believe that when I look at, you know, when I look at governments, when I look at companies, you know, something that I think we've taken for granted or we've taken as a given, at least in American society, is the, is growth, right? Mm -hmm. Um, that, we these entities the way that incentives are structured in our current system growth is rewarded and um you know there's when i think about in the when i think about this in kind of like the natural sphere or the you know the biological realm there's a, a natural ceiling to growth um you know like that's why we don't have giant organisms the way that maybe there once were with dinosaurs or something like that. I don't even know. I, don't, I think in Australia they have some larger organisms, but I think about one, um, you know, one example of, of uncapped growth and it's cancer. And so, you know, I think we're moving towards this, this space where we realize, okay, you know, certain aspects of our certain elements of our system, whether it be big tech, you know, and Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, Google, maybe not Netflix. Um, and even government has gotten too big. So what's happening is this natural reaction towards, you know, you, you called it super local, but it's really like almost tribal. Mm. Um, and that's the way that humans once coordinated themselves because we couldn't manage social relationships beyond a certain number. I think it's like 20, you know, or so individuals. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It's it, what's interesting to me though, that, you, you know, just touching on what you described is participating in a DAO and still having the human connection while that is great, you still have your human problems. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the tech, the tech isn't going to solve that, you know, um, that issue and if you need human coordination outside of the technology 
then the, you know, you might never be able to coordinate resources at scale. Is that because there is, there is, there are obviously benefits to scale to a certain extent, which is the flip side of what I was just saying, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. So I guess the question is, do you believe that, um, that these DAOs can scale resource coordination beyond hyperlocal, or do you just think that will have, you know, many of them? So that's a great question. And one really, really interesting experiment that answer that well attempts to answer that question is is a project called DAO stack mm. and DAO stack um, essentially has created a system that allows DAOs to scale and as a, and as a matter of fact it's put its money where its mouth is because currently the DAOs on DAO stack are some of the biggest DAOs in the space by participation numbers mm. by registration numbers um, by the number of and size of teams that they're funding, right? Um, in fact, I think that one of the technology teams funded by a DAO stack DAO has now out, outpaced, it's now bigger than the original DAO stack team. So, mm -hmm. so that gives you a, a sense. Now, how does DAO stack approach this problem? Well, it says, look, obviously um, you have a, like if you are at scale, you have to serve a lot of issues. A lot, you have to do a lot of decision-making and that decision-making has to be very widespread. Um, and of course, DAOs work on proposals, right? They People come together, they read some proposal about how to allocate capital or work or people, and then they vote. And if it passes, then that proposal um, you know, is executed by the DAO. Now, at scale, you can't have everyone look at all of the proposals. And so what the DAO stack system does is it floats the most important, most impactful things to the top, hmm. um, but just a few of them. And it leaves the really local things, the, the proposals of which there are a lot because they're like on the local level everywhere, right? Hmm. It leaves them to the local community. So you have sort of the best of both worlds. You have local people who want to deal with their local issues they can do that. And then the DAO as a whole can grow and many people can see sort of the, the much more impactful proposals at the top. Mm. And what that, um, they gave a name to that. It was called, uh, the system is called holographic consensus to be to oh, use it, a technical term. I haven't, I haven't heard of this. Yeah. And, and that's, that describes like how this sort of scaling of the DAO works. Early indications seem to be saying that um, maybe this, maybe this works. It's really cool. Yeah. It's, uh, it's so, it's so funny to just, you know, again, start from square one with these, with these concepts. Right. Um, but sometimes you, I think we need to cultivate that know nothing mind in order to move past what we already have. Like it's going to be this band of cypherpunks and, right. you know, outsiders that are going to change, change the world, change these systems. So, so that's very cool to hear about an experiment that's working like that. Mm hmm so, so we talked, we talked a little bit about, you know, about governance, about resource allocation, about the potential that this technology has on that front. Um, I, I do want to go back to, um, kind of data rights. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, as you mentioned, it's, you know, it's a fundamental right, I think, to have access and control over your own data. Um, mm -hmm. you know, how are, 
obviously, I, I guess framing the problem, you know, you, we look at other than Cambridge Analytica and the way that we're manipulated, um, potentially manipulated. We also have hacks, you know, massive hacks. I think Facebook had a had 50 million users um, data compromised. So that's the problem. Kind of where do you see the solution set here in our space? Well, so you said, you just said we have it as a right to own our own data. Mm. And as a matter of fact, that is not true. Right. So like, um, if you but think should, should it be absolutely, yeah. it, it should absolutely be true. But let me, let me just say what I mean. So, mm. um, if I want to do a, a personal journal where I want to put in some very private things that I don't want people to read and I, you know, I write that down on a piece of paper, that is a pretty private work. You know, I can, I can like secure it somewhere in a safe, etc. This is private to me and everyone, this is not a concept that... that Until your nosy sister comes in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, she'll have to break a big safe. But here's the point. If you do your, your, if you do the journal on a, in a Google document, you actually don't have those same privacy guarantees because Google can take your data and um, run a machine learning algorithm on it, or it could give it to a law enforcement agency against your will or, or something like that. Right. So the way that you're using these two technologies, a paper journal and Google docs is not different. Like it's your intention is to write down something personal and private and keep it uh, from others. But the result of using those two technologies is very, is very, very different. Right. Um, so this is a huge problem. And, and I think that um, we basically come out into two different worlds, like either, and I wrote a, an article about this on medium, yeah. but basically either we I'll, choose the link as well to that. Cause I really oh, great. enjoyed it. Thank you. Um, so either we choose to, um, basically fight for private, for digital privacy as a human right, mm. or almost inevitably our digital rights will be like eroded by governments and will be co-opted by governments. And we, I think the end state of that is that we essentially live in something like 1984 yeah. because there's just no digital privacy at all. And, and governments have this way of like using companies, right. As tools to, to manage like large groups of people They go and they, they go to Google and they say, give us all the private data, like, on the people that we're interested in. Mm. Um, there are now technologies that potentially can force governments and states to have to go directly to the person, like not like keeping the intermediate technology, like the Google Docs of the world, yeah. sort of neutral to what that person is doing. And I think, you know, to your point, uh, for some of the listeners out there, one question that often comes up when we talk about privacy is, well, I have nothing to hide. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Like the, the example that was, that I think is the best example for this is like, if you, you know, spend $75 on flowers for your girlfriend one day, do you want some stranger to be able to see that? You know, it's, yeah, you're not doing anything wrong, but think about all the information that they could gather about you from, from that one data point. 
um, mm-hmm. and then multiple of those over time. And so I, I don't think, you know, privacy is not predicated on I'm doing something right or I'm doing something wrong. It is truly a fundamental right. And it's one that we've taken for granted because in, in the world of atoms, you know, we have private spaces. They, you know, governments need warrants to come in and, and collect that information. Um, I believe they do with, with digital information as well, but it's, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely critical. Well, that argument, you know, um, it's a really infuriating one for me because mm-hmm. anyone who says that, just tell them, okay, well, if you, um, you know, if you really believe that, then, you know, send me the, send me the password to your email account and send me all your medical records and tell me who all your, you know, boyfriends and girlfriends were, et cetera. And of course people don't do that, right? Because they, they say that they have nothing to hide. Um, but as a matter of fact, um, as a matter of fact, they don't, they don't, there's information that they would prefer like not to share. Um, the other thing is that when you give a third party, access to your private data you create an agency problem and the agency problem just means that if someone is acting on your data they are they acting in your interest or are they acting in their own interest or are they acting in the interest of a third party and unfortunately this kind of power tends to get very abused right so part of why privacy is important is because there's an element of it that is a human right. But the other part of it is that there's no better way of implementing kind of a just world, right? Because we know that um, that, that these third parties um, often abuse the their rights to your and data even, as well. Even if they don't, if there's the potential for them to do that, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it needs to be changed. Because over time, it's just a matter of time until someone is a, becomes a bad actor yeah. on that front. And we've probably already reached that point, right? Um, because of the number of scandals that we've seen when it comes to data. One, one really like simple thought experiment that I've, that I've performed here. Like, have you ever, I'm not sure how old you are, but have you ever used a, AUL, AOL Instant Messenger? Oh, yeah, for sure. So like back in the day, yeah. everyone in the, in the dawn of the internet. Right? What, was your, what was your screen name? What did you say? <laughs> uh, my screen name was like Discrete Jake or something. Oh, nice. Because I was studying discrete math at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, was, I was Bubba Chunks because nice. that's, that's what my sisters called me. <laughs> well, I was so not studying discrete if, math at the time. If you remember AOL Instant Messenger, then you probably remember that there is this option there to save the history of all of your chats. Mm. Do you remember that? I don't remember that, no. Okay, so that was the case. And whenever you... Was it just at the bottom? It was just the one check? It was somewhere in, in the settings. But, okay. but here's what would happen. So if you, may, if you checked that box, then every interaction would go into a text file and it would get stored in this directory, you know, in your computer. And the thought experiment was, you know, for anyone who's done that, like, ask yourself... How many times did you go back to your history to actually look something up? And I think what you'll find is that most of the time, yeah, it's never. But the fact that that history exists uh, probably means that it contains something embarrassing that you've said. It probably contains something that you said behind somebody's back that you wouldn't want them to know. It probably 
you know, for some people might contain an admission to a crime, right? Whatever it is, the costs of keeping that data around probably massively outweigh the benefits of having a history of that data. And this is something that like Signal has recognized, you know, like in Signal, you have ephemeral chat, which means after a day or a, or a week or a month or whatever it is, those chats just go away because yeah. they're never used for anything. It makes, it makes sense. I mean, yeah, absolutely. That makes perfect sense. It's, and yet here we are in this, you know, in this current, in the current state of the world with almost boundless amounts of information on each and every one of us stored somewhere, mm -hmm. right. Or stored in multiple places by multiple companies and leveraged in, you know, in ways that I don't think we fully understand. And so unless we move to a world where everyone is just completely shameless and everything is, everything is public and it's like this radical transparency, mm -hmm. um, which I don't see happening and it wouldn't even make sense because institutions would also need to be completely transparent. And there's some issues there as well, mm -hmm. thinking about healthcare right. um, as one example, then yeah, absolutely. We need to move into a world where privacy is default. Um, so how do we get there? Um, well, I think as a first step, probably what is likely to happen is that there will be some, you know, especially in the U S like legislation passed. Mm. Uh, we see some, some legislation already passed in Europe to the, to the effect of, uh, privacy, but, you know, by and large, as long as we have this model where, you know, single companies are responsible for our data, I don't think, I think there's still like a lot of potential for abuse. So what gets me really excited is when I see things like decentralized storage networks. Mm. And what that means is just like a, uh, you know, a network where you can store data, but only you have access to it. It's like encrypted. Nobody else can know what it contains. You have the keys, etc. Um, and on top of those kinds of networks, what you can do is you can build, you know, the Google Docs of the world, but ones that are not able to be abused by you know, a central entity or, or corporation, right? Ones that a machine learning algorithm can't, can't get into. Um, and ones that, uh, that only, only you have access to and you choose who else does. So what we call that in, in the blockchain space is self-sovereign data. Um, and one investment, for example, that, that my fund made recently on this, uh, in this area is a company called three box. Mm. And Threebox um, gets its investors really excited because, on the one hand, um, it has some great features for applications in Ethereum, and on the other hand, it has this amazing use case for traditional companies that are creating things like IoT devices and storing a lot of user data. And what these companies have actually started to do is, you know, started coming coming to us and saying, "Listen, we don't want the liability." of storing private user data. We don't want that to get hacked and we don't want our customers to sue us. Um, we actually want to store that data in a decentralized network and have the customers be in charge of their own data. This is now becoming a trend. It's great to hear. I mean, it's great to hear that it's moving in that direction. And technologically, it's, it's possible right now at scale or are we still kind of 
you know, figuring that out? Uh, well, we have a number of decentralized storage networks in production, like people in Ethereum and beyond. They, they use uh, something called IPFS, which is the mm-hmm. interplanetary file system. Um, <laughs> there are projects like Filecoin, like storage. Mm-hmm. Um, there are decentralized CDNs, which are kind of these little computers all over the world that serve you data in, uh, you know, from the closest physically closest computer to you. Um, and so there's actually quite a bit of this technology, mm. this core technology that's out. What we don't have yet is a lot of like user facing applications that use that technology. Mm. But I think that will start to change over the next year or two. And, and enter, I guess enter, we were talking about this earlier, but enterprises are not ready really yet to use these. You know, they're kind of poking they, around, they, they, they have needs, but the tooling's not there for them. I would say, yeah, I would say it's early, um, but we are getting very close. Uh, like today, an enterprise could choose to store mm. data in a decentralized network. They'd have to probably do a little bit of work to set that up. Mm. So, you know, it's still early, but we're getting to that time where these things are actually going to be tested inside of products. So then, so... This has been, this is interesting. You know, we've covered, we've covered governance, we've covered privacy and data rights. And I think, you know, listeners will appreciate A, those problems, and then B, be excited to hear that there are people working on solving them, which is again, one of the reasons why I'm still in this space. Um, let's get to some like fun stuff. Yeah. Because recently, I think you, you, CoinFund invested in Flow or you had just previously invested in Dapper Labs? Well, so uh, we participated in a round uh, Mm -hmm. that Venrock led last year Mm -hmm. in Dapper Labs. And then at CoinFund, what we do a lot of is um, something we call active network participation or generalized mining. And in in this area, what we do is we actually participate in the blockchains that we fund. And so in Flow, um, we did participate in, in the round. Um, mm-hmm. And what, what our aim is, is to actually run a validator on that network. Ah, very cool. So, so some definitely some tech, some, a couple of technical um, points there. But, you know, I guess zooming out uh, on Flow and Dapper Labs, yeah. I think people will or may have heard of CryptoKitties. Yes. So Dapper Labs is essentially the creator of CryptoKitties. Yes. And these are called um, digital collectibles or what are known as non-fungible tokens. Yes. Or NFTs. Yes. So what's some of the, like, the, cool, you know, the cool use cases for NFTs? Sure. I think you mentioned you have your, you have your own. So let's, let's just let's talk a little bit about, <laughs> about what. Yes. So let, let, let's talk a little bit about what are CryptoKitties just for anyone who might not know. Yeah. So in the same way that we've had Tamagotchi or Pokemon. I love Tamagotchi. Always ended like up in, in the laundry machine. Um, or Beanie Babies. <laughs> <laughs> right? So um, CryptoKitties is a collectible digital cat. And it's actually really fun because each cat has a unique DNA. So it has like, it looks different. It has different colors. Some of them have bushy tails. Some of them have, um, they're blue. You know, some of them have glasses, etc. And what you can do is you can take two crypto kitties, kitties and breed them together and get a get a new crypto kitty that inherits some of the DNA of its parents and so um, cool. and and mashes their their traits together. Um, now, there's a few probably 
probably a couple million of them at this point. Um, How many do you own? I own, <laughs> I own something like a hundred, I want to say. What's I, your favorite crypto kitty? Crypto kitty number 12. <laughs> is, that, is that what it's called? It doesn't have. Well, it's so each name kitty is babies. numbered, right? Ah, because they're um, all unique. That's right. And the first 100 kitties are called founder cats because they came first. Um, so I actually own <laughs> Crypto Kitty number twelve. Is Crypto Kitty number twelve and all are all of the founder cats like big fat cats because their founder is in you know like you know dis- <laughs> disappointingly most of the founder cats are actually really plain because ah. they came first and only later did the really cool features started to come out where you had like striped cats and fluffy cats and and what have you. Um, but you know, and, and listeners are going to think this is crazy and I agree, but I'm actually selling crypto kitty number 12 for $1.3 million. No. Yes. Stop um, it. So the largest transaction you put it up for auction on, on eBay or I'm taking, uh, I'm taking bids on a blockchain collectibles auction website called OpenSea. Oh yes. Okay. Yep. That's where you can see all the NFTs, including crypto kitties. Um, and people might think that's, people have told me like, you're crazy. Like, why would anyone pay money for digital cats? Well, guess what? Um, the largest transaction in a, in a crypto kitty, I believe was about $140,000 or so. So someone actually paid that much money Mm. for this collectible. And I'm banking on the fact that in the future, like this CryptoKitties will be one of the first crypto collectibles in the world and someone like the MoMA is going to want to buy it. They're going to be able to buy it for me. So you have, so you put it up for auction at $1.3 million. You set that price. Someone is, hasn't offered you to buy that. Correct. So no one has okay. yet bought it. Okay. That's, um, that was like, that's the differentiator. I was like, <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. Well, I have to get one of these kitties. Right. <laughs> and so, so CryptoKitties are just one example of digital collectibles or many, many others. Um, there's artists who are creating digital artworks and putting them on the blockchain as NFTs. There are other kind of collectible series, right? So you have like a lot of cats, but then there's also something called um, clovers.network. There's something called block cities, which is a great project that I love where Mm. they have uh, collectibles of like little famous buildings and also randomly generated buildings. Oh, cool. Um, And I actually own the Genesis building of, of, of block cities. No way. So I'm a bit of an art collector mm-hmm. uh, in, in the digital blockchain art world. And I actually have a website what, you know, which displays my collection. It's called firstedition.art. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to check that out and I'll, I'll include a link as well. I think it'd be really, uh, really cool for listeners to go explore the digital art. And, and um, by the way, while you were here in LA, did you meet, um, did you meet up with crypto Brecky? He's an artist. <laughs> I've I've known him from Twitter. Face. I didn't I didn't meet up with him, but I I definitely know him from Twitter. And what I'm trying to do with first edition is really um, be a buyer of digital art, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of people like Brecky, right, who is creating digital mm-hmm. art and putting it on the blockchain and trying to sell it. Um, but there's not yet too many, let's say, investors or art patrons. collectors or pat- or just patrons, right? Yeah. Um, who are spending money. So I, my hope is that first edition, spending a little bit of money and, and, and giving that to artists for their work will help to jumpstart this market. And, and it's such a, it's such an important innovation, the idea of these NFTs and, and we don't need to dive into how the, te- to how the technology works. But when you think about mo- where 
kind of we're going right and maybe it's not even virtual worlds but maybe it's just as we move towards augmented reality mm-hmm. where things are layered you know images are layered on top of our existing our existing reality and we have con- AR contact lenses in yeah. our eyes or an implant in our brain even you know thinking thinking about digital art we can be walking into someone's home they might have nothing on the walls but we're seeing beautiful works mm. you know everywhere in in a real space right so that's something that really excites me about about digital collectibles is as i look at the evolution of augmented reality and i don't know if it, you know we're on a 5 year time time horizon to get there or 10 or 20 or whatever it is but i just think you know it's that's crucial for self expression and creativity in a world where we no longer will need um um superficial is not the word i'm looking for but decorative goods because they're virtual it will all be virtual yeah that's a that's a great point and 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 so you you alluded to um augmented reality as a place to display your digital artworks or digital digital collectibles um there's a much more sort of down to earth use case right like if um if you've ever played Fortnite or mm-hmm. if you've heard of you know your kids or whatever it is playing playing Fortnite right um Fortnite assets now have and just just digital assets inside of games now have billions of dollars in sales so yeah. if you ever want a way to explain you know digital collectibles to to a new person you just say hey like look at Fortnite and everyone immediately gets it what you're referring to is like using blockchain technologies you can get these things into many many more uh applications so you can get them into AR you can get them into VR um in fact virtual worlds in other words like 3D virtual universes like as we've had for 10 years with second life mm-hmm. um in the blockchain space we have decentraland and crypto voxels as virtual do you worlds. own um land in decentraland as well i do own land i, I was actually an early advisor to decentraland okay um, cool i've known the founders for this is time. this is a virtual um, world that was created similar to right. like the oasis in um these are all becoming venues ready player one exactly and and these are all becoming metaverse becoming somewhere. venues for uh for for using digital art now if you walk through um crypto voxels what you'll notice is that most of the buildings inside of that virtual world are art galleries hmm. that's the prime um application of virtual worlds at this moment where people are using them to build walls upon which they can put their digital artwork you have a couple of companies in the physical world building digital picture frames this is just a frame where you can, you know, you can hook it up with your laptop and then upload artworks into it. And when you combine those with marketplaces for digital artworks, that becomes another venue where these artists can sell their work, get exposure, um, generate revenue, and create a sustainable lifestyle for themselves. It's fascinating, and you know, definitely the gaming use case is huge. Obviously, you know, I think, I think that it was the Fortnite. It was one of these. Might have been League of Legends. Was more watched than the Super Bowl or something like that. These massive kind of mm-hmm. esports tournaments are so, you know, so popular. Maybe not for you know for yeah, actually for my generation as well. There's tons of tons of um, activity there. But you know, 
moving forward, I, I can, I can see how that provable digital scarcity, um, mm-hmm. will be layered onto this, this existing reality. Art is the first use case, but I think about clothing as well, yes. right? You know, think about we're already moving towards a highly, um, a more precise kind of manufacturing run when people create shirts. You know, it used to be like a company would do a run of 10,000 units and know that if they sold 1,500 units at, at Nordstrom's, then, or Nordstrom's knew if they sold 1,500, they'd break even, right? So they'd order 10,000, 1,500 break even. There's a ton of waste on the back end. It's hard to, to recycle these materials, the cloth that we're wearing. I could see us moving into a world where we're all wearing a hemp t-shirt, you know, <laughs> and we all have our AR goggles on or whatever AR in our brain. And we all just get to express a That's new, so funny a and new weird. piece of whatever digital clothing every day. And it's already started on Instagram. Um, and I have this kind of like little, you know, I have, I have a, it's not an obsession, but I'm just fascinated by the things that people do on Instagram. Um, and when we, you know, someone just sold a dress for $9,600, that was a digital dress, mm. but, um, you know, it looked real, it looked photo real. So it, you mean it was a virtual dress? It didn't actually exist in the physical world? Exactly. It was a virtual dress. Okay. Gotcha. And so was it a, are you referring to the thing that happened at Ethereal or is that? I don't know else? if it was that Ethereal, but okay. it was... It was just someone created like a virtual good, yes, which was a dress, and then sold and then it. sold it for ninety six hundred dollars. That's crazy. And is there a is there a physical version of a dress? No, there's no physical version. No of physical dress. version. And what can you do with the dress? You can put it on your photo, right? Like it's wow. the same way. To me, it's an extension. This is going to be the bridge. You know, like something like Instagram, gaming as well. But you know. I guess mainstream, how do people define mainstream? There's so many, you know, what is the gaming community? It's massive. So that probably is mainstream, especially overseas. Mm -hmm. But you know, when I, when I think about kind of virtual goods, I think Instagram or, or platforms like it are a bridge for the average user to participate in, in blockchain. So I I always think about the, um, if you guys remember the, the Elon tweet that he got in trouble for, where he was like, oh, I'm taking Tesla private, right? I always thought, hey, you know, if you can make that tweet scarce, like in the same way that people frame tweets and put them on their wall, yeah, but digitally make it scarce and like sell famous tweets. That'd be cool. Um, there, in fact, you can look this up, right? Like what are the most famous tweets in the world? I think like the most famous is the, um, what was it? Uh, it was like Ellen DeGeneres' selfie at the uh, oh at Academy, the Oscars, at the Oscars. Yeah. yeah. That's so funny. I haven't even imagine thought you about could that. actually own that. Yeah, there's there's so many different you know possible use cases for for what you can own and trade and I don't know. It's uh, it's interesting and it's all because of this this simple concept of scarcity, mm-hmm. right? Which goes back to right why people invested in many people invested in Bitcoin in the first place. There's another really interesting angle to, um, you know, to these like digital artworks on the blockchain for me, which is that, you know, if you think about the art world today, mm. um, very few artists can actually um, make a living doing art full time mm-hmm. and, and, and a comfortable living at that. And, and one of the reasons that that's the case is because the number of art buyers 
in the world is extremely concentrated. There's probably like, I don't know, I don't know the exact number, like a hundred companies or something. Gagosian and, you know, this auction house and that auction house, right? That buy 99.99% of the art in the world. And so if you want to be an artist who is well compensated, you have to go into the graces of of those of those folks. You have yeah. to like play the game as it's called. Um, now what's really exciting to me is that when people can use open marketplaces to sell scarce digital versions of their artwork, um, you kind of tend to open up the marketplace. More people can see your stuff, more people can buy your stuff. Maybe the price point is lower. Yes. Right? But the effect that that has is like maybe now not 1% of artists can have a sustainable sort of career as an artist, right? But maybe now it's 10%, maybe it's 20%. Um, and take that, taking that a step further, another thing that we can do with, with smart contracts, you know, oftentimes artists pass before their artwork is even worth anything. Mm. And it's not worth much on the primary sale, but then on the secondary and tertiary and on and on and on, it becomes worth more and more. But the artist and the artist's estate do not participate in that upside. And so with smart contracts, I can see a world where, you know, artists selling their digital art, not only are paid on the primary sale, but they're paid on the on the primary, the yes. secondary, the tertiary, and continue to get paid yes. some small percentage every time, or even maybe shrinking percentage every time their piece gets resold. Yes. And to participate in that, that that kind of revenue stream. That is killer. That is huge. Um, that is an awesome use case. I've heard artists tell, well, artists have told me that um, that they would be really excited for that. We have a couple of digital art platforms and blockchain that are doing experiments with exactly that. Mm. And there's a history that even, I think, I want to say some state, it might be California, they actually have a law on the books uh, where you have to do that. If, you, if an artist's work changes hands, you actually have to give them commission. But the problem is... to prove. Exactly. Nobody complies with yeah. that law. Now, when you're on the blockchain, you can actually force compliance because the transaction is recorded on an immutable ledger. Right. Beautiful. Well, I think that was a really fun conversation. It's getting dark here. The <laughs> It got dark about 30 minutes ago, but um, I really appreciate you taking the time, Jacob. Is there anything else that you know you would like to, to say? You know, how can people find you? Yeah. Um, um, so thank you so much for having me, Mark. It's been, uh, it's been great chatting been with fun. you. I know that blockchain is this like big complicated topic for most people. Um, we try to, you know, educate folks about it. We have a blog, uh, it's blog.coinfund.io. Mm. Um, we're also on Twitter. I'm JBRUKH on Twitter. I think if, we first interacted on Twitter. Exactly. Overgeneralized and mining. <laughs> that's right. And, and, um, you know, if, if anyone has questions about blockchain, like tweet at us, we'll, we'll help, um, demystify it. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think again, that's how we connected. I was asking a question about generalized mining on Twitter to this, you know, this digital image of Jake Bruckman and, you know, had read everything that you wrote on the subject and was like, all of a sudden you responded. I was like, oh, whoa, that's cool. That's the power of, of Twitter. Yeah, it's awesome. But it's a great equalizer. We're, we're collaborative and uh, we, we love uh, we love the, 
community. So like reach out to us if you ever have any questions on, on these topics. Awesome. Well, this was a lot of fun and I will post um, all of the relevant links in the show notes. So thanks for your time, brother. Awesome. Thanks, Mark. Cool. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed that episode and I hope that you're enjoying the podcast. It's been a really fun ride so far. I just get so excited every time I meet some of these incredible people and just love sharing their stories and, and ideas with you all. You can learn more about the show at thelookuppodcast.com. That's T-H-E, lookuppodcast.com. Uh, you can follow me on social media at Wark Meinstein, W-A-R-C-M-E-I-N-S-T-E-I-N on both Twitter, Instagram, um, and Medium, and Facebook. Uh, we have a Facebook page for the show as well, The Lookup Podcast um, on Facebook, so check us out. You can also subscribe to our mailing list on the website for more future updates. If there's anything from the show that you want to catch, I've posted that in the show links for you to check out. And if there's any way that I can improve, please let me know. Feel free to reach out. If you have any guest recommendations, please let me know. Other than a couple of individuals who are helping me out in the background, you know, this is a passion project and I'm always open to feedback and any kind of support. I want to thank Sam Palumbo and Patch Kid Music for the sound editing and the intro and outro song that he created. And I want to thank Hello There Collective for their support on my social media. You can check them out at hellotherecollective.com. All right, that's enough for me. I'm sure you're ready to go on to your next activity. Thank you for listening. And please come back again next week for another episode of the Look Up podcast. Mm-hmm.